Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I am your host, Anne Mulatala. Today, my guest is customer experience specialist and consultant, Helen Baines. I was lucky enough to meet Helen via our very close common friend, the one and only Lupe Puerta, her mentee and a fantastic entrepreneur herself. When I met Helen, it was like there was a recognition of sorts. You know, when you see someone that you want to spend more time with, get to know, potentially work with them. And fast forward a few years with Helen and I both becoming consultants, we were able to put some projects together, which led me to appreciate her know-how, her expertise, and her ethos even more. So whether or not you understand customer journey, as she says, if your customers deliver your revenue, what's not to care about? Yes, that's Helen right there. She does this thing where she mic drops all the time. <laughs> so I hope you appreciate as much as I did my wide-ranging conversation with Helen Baines. Enjoy. So Helen, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you please tell our listeners where you are in the world? So I live in lovely Brighton on the south coast of England. I live about 50 yards from the seafront. I'm very privileged. So I get to see the sea every day of my life. Oh, you just reminded me that you sent me a gorgeous picture that you said was very out of the clouds. That's right. Yes. That was the view of my walk home from um, school run one morning <laughs> where there was an incredible moment of the sun bursting through the clouds. Um, yeah, it's amazing how different the sky and the sea are every day. It's definitely a really big part of quality of life here for me. So Amazing. So I had the pleasure of asking you a few questions. I think it was back in November, early November. I did a mini interview of you for my consultancy website for ABM mm-hmm. Consulting, which I'll put in the show notes. And I was delighted to discover that we have very similar roots <laughs> when it comes to our careers, roots that are steeped in, in our love of, of shoes and retail. Indeed. But so <laughs> I thought, why don't I let you Tell our listeners your story about um, who you are and what you do. Of course. So so I guess I, I wanted to work in fashion since I was about 10. I grew up on the, the clothes show, the television show in the 80s presented by Karen Franklin. And that really sparked my interest in, in fashion, really. And I was creative and I loved doing art at school. And I spent my whole time at school just wanting to do textile design really and to do the creative side and then when I actually got to that stage of academia doing my foundation course I realized that actually I really missed using the academic side of my brain and I ended up doing history of foreign and decorative arts but throughout my time as a student I always kept my 
passion for clothes, going through working in retail and running the wardrobe for the performing societies and designing costumes and sets. And that sort of, that was how I kind of kept my balance going. So I'd worked in retail since I was 15. As you mentioned, started in shoes, worked for Waitrose, worked for Next. And I remember distinctly being on the shop floor one Sunday at Next, where I worked weekends and just thinking, someone puts all this together. And I know, I know that I could do that. I just remember having this thought and this was what sparked my whole interest in terms of moving into retail and specifically fashion retail after graduating. And as a result, I ended up at Harrods on their management training program, which was called the executive training scheme at the time, which I loved. And I got to work my way all around different areas of the, sh- of the store, which was incredible. I do remember the feedback on my interview was that they hired me for my customer centricity. And, but ultimately I really was very single minded. I wanted to work in ladies fashion and I did get there eventually by in my first year of working for the business. Then I worked my way around ladies fashion floor and I started in plus collections, which was just the most amazing grounding because of the way the team worked and they were really established, experienced salespeople. So. I mean, I think my Saturday girl was in her 60s and, you know, I was there in there as a 25-year-old manager. So that in itself was quite a challenge to be respected by people who really know a lot more than, than you do in many ways. I managed that through building relationships with the team and um, I think leading a successful stock take when the manager was on holiday. I think that was the thing that, that sealed the deal and, and really created the confidence. That would do um, it. But ultimately, it was an amazing department to work in because of the staff and the way they looked after their customers differently. And that really has been, you know, the the three to four years that I spent really working in, in ladies' fashion has been really foundational for me in terms of learning what good looks like and how I have taken that. I applied that through my many years at Nesporte. It really was the core part of the grounding and it's something I still refer back to frequently. It was really instilled in us culturally. You know, the customer is truly at the heart of everything at Harrods, right the way through to everyone you work sort of across the business. I mean, I worked in the warehouse for a while and worked in all different areas of the business. And you could really, you could really sense that. I and mean, it was always about going above and above and beyond. So moving on from there, I then went to work at Nesporto from the very early days. I joined when the business was less than two years old. So Net-a-Porte was one of the first multi-brand e-commerce luxury fashion websites. It started in the year 2000. I joined in 2002. And at the time I joined, I remember we had brands such as Jimmy Choo. They were pretty early onto the site. We were on. Louboutin was on. We were on in 2002. Yeah, we were because in 2001, Leslie <laughs> Masney was visiting my <laughs> office, which was like a sort of a dismal dungeon like little basement under the sidewalk of Mockham Street. Ah, yeah, similar environment to the office under the <laughs> stairs that I was sitting in. <laughs> I remember very well when she came in with Sojin in tow, and I was thinking, damn, I can't believe that's where I'm showing the collection, but that's fine. <laughs> they worked out in the end. It definitely worked out. I suppose my lasting memory of working with Louboutin was when 
was the shoe that was worn with the galaxy dress with the Roland Murray galaxy and goldsmith dress. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but I can see it in, La my, in my mind's eye. Like that yeah. for me, for, that was around the beginning of the Louboutin moment that went on for quite a while. So there you are fresh out of Harrods and you've toured around the entire store. You're dedicated to ladies fashion and you land on a website in 2002. How interesting was that for you? <laughs> oh, it was the most refreshing thing ever. I loved it. I just thought it was so exciting. And I think, interestingly, when I look back, one of the projects I'd had to do when I was going through the graduate recruitment programs, but one of the projects I had to do was around e-commerce. So that would have been in like 1998. So I kind of had my head in that space. I'd always been interested in what Harrods was doing online because even though they didn't really invest in it in a big way, up until that time, they were present and figuring it out, I suppose. So yes, I just found the whole environment of working in a small business just so refreshing, actually. It was about building something new. And there was an openness to having conversations about improving things. Well, maybe not even improving things, but trying new things that was um, so exciting. I started in customer care. And and then I ended up sort of setting up the personal shopping function. I guess my first observation with customer care was in the early days, we were focused on resolving operational issues. So whether it's either making sure that customers got their delivery, which is obviously incredibly important, but it was very manual, the process around receiving returns and generating refunds, which was always which was obviously important as well. But what we didn't do was reply to the sales inquiries. And I just found that completely <laughs> perplexing. <laughs> and I think that was just sort of opening conversation that it sort of opened the door. And it turned out that they had, that there was one of the other mem team members was running sort of a waiting list special orders function. And it was for people who wanted specific items, either because they'd sold out or they we were, hadn't received them yet, what have you. And that became the basis of personal shopping. There was a list of VIPs from the very beginning. And there was this functionality to create special orders for customers. Can you explain EIPs to people? Of course. So EIP is the net apporté version of extremely important person. And a special order was the ability to reserve an item to a customer's account. It was very manual, but we had the ability to do it. So if you had told me, if you had been my client and you were looking for a specific item that was coming in, I would be keeping a manual waiting list in the background. But then once the product came into the business, I would be creating a special order which would show up on your account when you logged in and I would be contacting you to let you know it was coming and then when it was available and then you could go through and buy it. So that, that was all there from the very beginning and it was this way of working which we sort of evolved into this multi-million pound department within the business ultimately. And it all really was centered around meeting customer need. Very early on, I realized that I was working with a client who was a very early adopter in digital and also a very early adopter in the fashion cycle. And she would be looking at the slideshows on style.com and contacting us to see which looks we might have bought. Mm. And it was just really understanding like who this client was and how invested she was in wardrobing. And that really was what started to open up 
all the wonderful conversations over the years. And that was something that we really continued to build on as the business scaled and is still at the heart of the way personal first access is really core to the way the EIP program runs at Nestle today for those who are part of it. So it sounds like it was an incredible experience. And having been relatively close to the business, I know that it you know, it became a huge, huge success. You left Netaporte a, a couple of years ago now, and you are consulting. Uh, I think your title is mm-hmm. customer experience consultant. So while I understand, and I think mm-hmm. many people understand the concept of personal shopping and meeting the customer's needs, I would love for you to tell us what is important about the function of experience design. Mm-hmm. So experience design is about putting the customer at the heart of everything that you do, every experience that you create for them, big or small, really. The principles sit really within design thinking and experience design uses a lot of different design thinking methodologies. But it really depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. To really know the problem that you're trying to solve, you need to have been listening to your customer, whether it is literally listening to them one-on-one right the way through to understanding patterns that are going on in your data or in your customer service team to understand where the bumps in your road are. Experience design can work in many ways. It can be pretty granular and really rooted in service design, which thinks about what's going on with the customer, what are they experiencing with your brand, Where are they experiencing that with your brand and what's required to enable that behind that experience behind the scenes? Forrester, who are big consultancy in customer experience and have really defined this whole methodology around customer experience, they would say that your customer experience vision should map to your brand vision. A customer experience vision is around how your customer feels about your brand and You know, it should be three or four words that are unique to your brand and that you should be able to identify those feelings through essentially listening to your customer and understanding their behavior. So it's essentially knowing whether your brand is creating the feelings in your customer that you intend. Whilst experience can be very granular and running along the bottom, and it can be a lot of ironing out the bumps, filling in the potholes in your road, which quite often easier said than done. Equally, for that to be actually really successful, experience needs to filter down from the top, be tied into the vision, be believed in by the leading figures in the organization and really become part of your culture. And it's successful experience is where your business is rallied around, around the customer. You know, in my current role as a consultant, it can stretch right the way from thinking about this overarching approach within a business or a brand and what that looks like right the way down to, okay, customer care is falling apart. What do we need to do to fix that? It's really interesting, actually, when you get, to, you know, talking to different teams in different businesses and, and, and some of it is just actually about helping them articulate what their vision is for their customer experience and helping them define that. And quite often it exists within the organization. It's just that they're running at such a speed that nobody's actually taken the time 
to sit down and, and define it. When I took on customer care at Net-A-Porte in 2008, that was the first thing that I did was I had a team that was just running in all different directions that I needed to unify around, right, what does the customer expect from us? She's really engaged in our brand. How are we meeting on her expectations? You know, what does that mean in really real terms as well? We called it the standards for excellence and we use that as a governance piece throughout to guide us through everything we did as we went through very rapid growth over a period of five years and we rolled out teams across different businesses, different continents, different languages, really rapidly expanded to meet the ever-demanding needs of the e-commerce audience, essentially. It's really critical if you, especially in a customer care environment where there are times of the year when you are bringing in temporary heads because you know you're going to have an uplift in volume. And actually, how can you do that in a way that's efficient but it also is effective. And by effective, it still delivers the best possible experience to the end customer in a way that's consistent with no matter who they're speaking to in the team. Now, clearly, that's not necessarily as easily said as done. But to have this overarching, this is what we're out to deliver here. This is how we deliver it. This is how we onboard our employees into the team and you know, setting an expectation it just puts everybody working towards a collective goal in the right direction. So I'm a massive believer in that. I am very interested about the last points that you were just describing, because I think it's once you have such a clear goal, it's much easier to get the buy-in from the team. I was about to ask you, how important is the recruitment piece in order oh, to actually huge. deliver on the on the customer journey expectations. Yeah, it's really the recruitment piece is really important. I mean, first of all, if you've got a happy staff, you're much more likely to have happy customers and especially for any function that is customer facing and on the front line because it's hard. It's really hard. You effectively pick up the mistakes for the rest of the business. And that's not meant in an accusational way. It's just a fact of of life and of e-commerce, if it's e-commerce that you're in. It's always a challenge educating the business around the knock-on effect that running a campaign in a certain way can have on the customer, for example. Recruiting a team who are aligned with your approach, because some businesses just find customers annoying. And, and I've noticed that before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I guess there can be at times. <laughs> it's not with people. And I think this is, this is the piece ultimately, right? Everybody's. A I don't person. know what you mean. I'm charming <laughs> always. <laughs> we all have bad days, you know, and you can get it in the net from a customer for something that's really, well, we used to have this phrase when things were a bit crazy where we would be like, you know, we're not, we're not saving lives here. Keep it all in perspective for all of us when we'd have somebody who was, you know, driving us crazy. And there are so many, like, so many anecdotal stories about all of that. You know, people are amazing in their extremes. So, mm. yes, yeah, so, to, you know, to be able to hire people that can embrace it and can act with empathy is incredibly valuable. You also need to hire a mix of skill sets because some people are incredibly brilliant at problem solving and that's what you know they really thrive in others are much more commercial love to 
talk to clients and build relationships with them remotely and generate sales and, you know, create loyalty. And then you've got others who are quite happy being in the middle who will just, who are much more all-rounders. And certainly from my experience, that was what we used to see within the team. And I think one of the most exciting things was as the team grew, was how we could develop our employees into different areas of speciality within the team and retain them and even migrate them into other areas of the business. And we became a bit of a pipeline for some, you know, junior sidestepping roles um, into other areas of business. So, but we really placed a heavy emphasis on recruitment. And I think one of the reasons for that, certainly back in the 2008, was that something I have realized latterly that, that nobody was doing what we were doing. And it meant that if you hired from a call center, some would be coming from a bank or real traditional call center environment. And we weren't that. We were trying to recreate the luxury shop floor experience through our customer care team, ultimately. Actually, to begin with, we hired from retail and we hired from shop floor and we invested in training people, you know, to be able to work with the systems and what have you because we found they came with the right attitude, which is something that you can't really train, whereas other skills you can. So really it was focusing on where we needed to focus our energy to achieve the results that we were looking for. Mm, That's super inspiring. Now, I want to link that back to your early retail experience. I believe that you have that attitude And I worked on the shop floor. I think I have it too. What do you think this shop floor experience really teaches to people once they get into the business? I think it is very related to the environment that you've come from, from shop floor. Mm -hmm. So either you've worked in a smaller environment where you've been empowered and have had autonomy or if you are coming from a bigger retailer where you've got a really established onboarding program into the business and you've been there for a while, it can give you really good grounding so that when you've been in that intense customer, customer facing environment where the customer is literally there in front of you within luxury retail, you know, the expectations are, are high. We looked for people that could demonstrate their customer centricity through their experience and could really give good examples based on the training that they've and experience that they've had previously before coming to join us. I guess that's how I'd describe it really. Yeah, that's um that's really interesting. Businesses seem to forget that there's a real human being on the other side. Oh, absolutely. Very often. And I think for those who are in the customer care centers, they're either taught that they should consider the human being or they are taught not to. Mm-hmm. That's a dichotomy that we're going to see, I think, um, continue. Yes, I, I really agree. It's a risk as businesses get big because mm-hmm. customers become numbers. They come numbers on their e-commerce numbers. They come numbers through their contact center numbers mm-hmm. and numbers can be amazing. Sometimes you discount the small numbers who are just as important as the bigger numbers and that comes through in patterns of insight. It's very easy to forget that there's an individual on the other end. The UK is 
I think one of the more established countries in terms of customer service, I think, in Europe. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it's closer to the US who are very Very. highly customer centric. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding Switzerland not at all customer centric. I mean, I wonder how do you imagine the rest of the world and the rest of Europe is going to catch up? Yes. Netaporto was always, was always global. Yes. You know, we, we ship globally and we spoke to customers globally. One of the things that becomes really important as you grow is to be, is to A, ask your team questions about customers and B, to encourage them to feed back to you. And as we saw different markets emerge globally, there would be business conversations going on about those markets. And then we would be starting to look about what actually what's meaning to them from a service perspective. It was really fascinating, the different trends that would emerge over time. In terms of how the rest of Europe catches up, I guess a lot of it will end up being consumer-led. The more businesses that operate globally, depending on their starting point and the experience that customers have from shopping from them, will start to form their localized expectations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a feeling that newer businesses run by younger people are going to find it much easier to pivot because I had an experience of really difficult interaction with the business and I had bought myself an item from my office. But then do you know what? Do you know what unlocked it? I got on the phone to someone who actually listened to me and I also happened to be in a really good mood that day. <laughs> so I was an RC. I said, listen, I understand. I contacted your team before Christmas. I'm sure it'd been terrible. I know you were in lockdown. And I meant it. I wasn't trying to be tactical. Yeah. But then that meant that the exchange was very different. And in the end, yeah. you know, she made the order for the replacement purchase. And then there was a whole bunch of other problems down the line. <laughs> but but that human bit really is what solved it because there was someone on the other line who listened to me. Yeah, and I think it's something for us all to consider as consumers as well, to be honest. It's like we all have to think about how we behave and how we get the best out of any frustrating situation. And there are just some days when, you know, the frustration overrides and the person at the other end of the phone is is the way of expressing that. Sometimes it's the thing that gets you what you want and other times I think it blocks you. Yeah, kindness goes a long way, right? It's just that we can't all be there necessarily every day as much as we might like to. Yeah. But what we can do is we can pass it forward. I wrote about this a few, a few months ago, and I may have told you that story, but in doing the alt MBA with Seth Godin, he created a sort of a semi prompt. I think he called it catching people doing right. Mm. And so the idea for two or three week period is that every day you have to catch someone doing something well and either compliment them or tell their manager. Yes. And I have to tell you, just thinking about it makes me (laughs) emotional. I remember doing that on the shop floor itself, which is a couple of years ago. Oh my God, the poor girl. When I said, do you mind (laughs) asking for a manager? The manager (laughs) arrived on the ladies, (laughs) international ladies shop floor thinking, oh God, what's going to happen to me? And I basically gushed about how amazing this Italian girl was at the Stella McCartney Mm. concession. 
And she looked at me as if, I don't know, I'd thrown some cold water at her. But um, <laughs> So did you have a system in place to help your team also feel good about the work that they did? Because yeah. like you said, they are putting out the fires for the mm. business every day. Absolutely. What can we do for people who are looking after our customers? Well, it all starts with gratitude, right? Saying thank you to people, recognizing when they have gone above and beyond. I've always believed in thanking your team. You know, if it's only just saying thank you as everybody, you know, thank you for your hard work today as they leave at the end of the day. Customers like to feel thanked too. Works both ways. It's incredibly important for your team. We did have to monitor performance because you do have to monitor standards of performance. It's really great to have categories or awards that you can nominate individuals for. And like, you know, even if it's just celebration within your own team, especially as you get to become a bigger team to make sure that you're celebrating people who are exemplifying the standards that you want everybody else to try and achieve. We used to, we used to call it engagement, actually employee engagement. It might be that we would buy everybody pizza for lunch on Fridays at the end of the first week of the sale. I don't know, you know, and sometimes it's just those like gestures. But for those teams that are working really hard are really meaningful. That's lovely. So monitoring employee performance is interesting because you and I have talked a little bit before about how we not only help make our teams happy, but also make the customers happy and, and monitoring that, that, you know, that in between. Mm. And you had shared with me how inspired you had been by Tonissie, who was famously at Zappos and that you read his book and, mm. and you had gone and, and seen the Zappos head offices in Las Vegas. Do you want to tell me a little bit about how that inspiration has sort of moved you and, and helped you along the career that you've had so far? Yeah, absolutely. I used to attend a conference in these states called Next Generation Customer Experience and speaking of the US being streets ahead in terms of customer services, actually their just their overarching level of customer centricity is a good five years ahead from us. And that was really formative for me in terms of how I viewed customers sort of strategically within the business. Think specifically to Zappos, I saw different members of the team present a number of times and then was fortunate enough to get to go to the head office. And I think one of the things that was so striking about them, and I mean, they were very unique in many ways, but was how they really embedded customer into their culture, like business-wide. I do remember going to the headquarters and all of the customer care teams, their workstations were all like, I wouldn't say decorated, it's not quite the right word, but they were all like themed and there was this huge amount of like visual creativity where each individual had made their workstation an expression of themselves. And it was quite incredible to um, walk around, especially compared to our black and white offices that were very minimal. So it was quite a stark contrast. What really impressed upon me was their ability as a business to embed the customer in the heart of their business culture and for every function in the business to embrace that. Tony's book, Delivering Happiness is incredible. The story that he tells of where that came from, and it literally came from a point of the business nearly 
not being in a position to continue really sort of articulates like how they did that. And it's really inspiring to read. And I'd actually even forgotten that I had the book. I remember discovering it in my time off and, and getting really engrossed in it before I read. Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a really inspiring read. Highly recommended. Mm. Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but I was very thankful for some of the concepts that you brought to me. And I did, I did read 15 minutes snippet mm. on Blinkist. It's my new favorite thing. I love Blinkist. I remember you telling me that Tony Sier had described three groups that you need to keep happy. Yes. Do you mind speaking mm-hmm. to that and how that's mattered to you so far? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And this really like feeds into customer experience methodology as well, where, you know, so that your consumer is one group of your customers, your employee is another group of your customers. So we've just talked quite a lot about the employee and how happy employees help create happy customers. And then the third group is your business partners. So they could be your logistics provider. It could be the brands that you sell and how, you know, your relationship with those is really important in terms of delivering a positive experience for your end consumer. So if you think about it from if you are a retailer that stocks brands, so there's a whole supply chain thing. Is it that you want to get the stock first? You want exclusives, creating that really strong relationship with your brands for a consumer that's very product orientated and that kind of environment can be incredibly powerful. Think about it from a carrier partner perspective. It's gently you know, operational carriers are generally all managed around KPIs and around delivery, first time delivery and failed deliveries and all the rest of it. If you actually build the relationship with your account manager, you can get way better results in their KPIs just simply because they want to help you. It's actually, it's all relationships with people ultimately is what it comes down to. And people that matter to your business because it's about delivering that end experience Mm -hmm. to the customer. And to me, that's always made perfect sense because my perspective has always been around, you know, how the business needs to work as this well-oiled machine to deliver on meeting customer needs. Have you ever worked with WorldNet? Does that ring a bell? WorldNet. It's a small but great shipper in the UK. No, I haven't worked with them actually. Yeah, they do a lot of um, bespoke shipping. I will always remember Tina, the account manager at Wellnet. <laughs> you can pretty much get anything done once you speak to Tina. That's, mm-hmm. that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. One day I was, I was, I think I was in, I can't remember if I was in Stockholm or Copenhagen for work and she had my mobile number and I had bought a Chanel purse at the Chanel sample sale, the infamous Chanel sample sale at Claridge's, the one time I want. And I, I didn't buy myself a purse. I bought my mum a purse. Gold star, right? <laughs> Except that obviously the Swiss customs were refusing to let it through because they didn't believe it was 150 pounds. And I was like, <laughs> anyways, Tina put it through. She just like worked her magic. <laughs> it's always helpful. I do agree with you. I think I, I believe that everything that we do in life is about relationships. And I try to help my customers and people in and around me to consider being more collaborative with with all of the people who touch their business, however closely. Mm. Yes, 
couldn't agree more. Now, Collaboration is key. Oh, yeah. But so where do you find is the biggest pain point in businesses that are trying to upgrade in their customer experience? Where do you see the biggest problems? They are generally linked to growth, actually, where they've not got the foundations quite right and not necessarily due to any fault of their own. What they were doing before has served them well and they've maybe just not got the right person in place to lead the growth of the team or know what systems that they need in place. I suppose I'm referring more to customer care as a whole. So your standards can drop, your service levels drop, that it just becomes a bit of a vicious circle in any business that's becoming volume led. The minute your service level drops, your response time drops, you create more inquiries for yourself. It's understanding the reasons behind those service levels changing that's quite often the challenge. Businesses will generally look to the team rather than to understanding the reasons behind the higher volumes ah. and mm. what the drivers for those are. So that can be quite challenging when everybody in the business is generally under a lot of stress at a time like that. So collaboration is not always at its best. <laughs> Abu? Stress, <laughs> <laughs> collaboration are not the perfect friends. I don't know what you mean. That's quite a classic scenario when you've got a lot of pressure mm-hmm. coming that's either generated by growth or desire for growth means that businesses can make decisions that are not great for customer experience quite often, to be honest. They might be great for their bottom line, but you're maybe looking at more of a one and done customer as opposed to a repeat customer. Yeah. And for me, it's about the long term keep them happy, keep them coming back. Retention. Mm. Let's explore retention. Tell me more about that. Well, retention is your measure of a of lasting relationship with your brand, really, or a lasting commercial relationship, I guess. Um, so certainly in retail, you, you should be looking to retain a core group of customers. There will inevitably be some people that just shop with you once for whatever reason that may be. But it's really important to understand the reasons that you do retain your loyal customers so that you can go on to find more customers that you can retain or equally understand why you don't retain people. This is where customer insight is incredibly important. Having an insight program set up and running, whether measuring customer satisfaction should really be measured in parallel to retention so you can understand how the two how the two ebb and flow together. Retention is a longer term view on business and it doesn't always work hand in hand with business needs when you've got to hit a target that someone has set. It's a difficult one mm. to balance out at times. Mm. Yeah, I um, I feel like I've had this conversation in different businesses that there's always that tension between the voices in the brand or in the company that want long-term mm-hmm. results of a certain type, like, you know, loyalty and retention and internal retention as well of staff, right? Yes, With lower turnovers. Exactly. And high 
sales targets. So, you know, with certain people who are results driven and only at that level. We discussed last week with um, Todd Lynn in the fashion industry in particular, we discussed how in the good old days, as I think he could call them, uh, 2006, <laughs> 2007, yeah. all of the department stores and the multi-brand stores had so much cash and they were um, buying and buying and everyone was trying to scale. And yeah. he was telling me how he remembers being pushed to scale without necessarily understanding how that would be beneficial yes. for him and, and his vision and the values that were behind his brand. And he posits that young designers nowadays are not going to try and do that. I remember that you and I had talked about how for the first year of having a new person as a personal shopper in your team, you were always keen on having really low targets mm. because you didn't want someone to push sales onto new clients and you were all about building relationship. Yeah. Do you maybe want to talk to that? Personal shopping should be a, around a long-term approach to sales and building one-on-one -on -one relationships. And that was something that we really focused on at Netaporte. So build this really close relationship with an individual. It comes from a place where they're already loyal to the brand. So they've been shopping for a certain amount of time. They've spent a certain amount of money. So they're bought into the experience that the brand delivers. And then when you can tap in that sort of personal relationship on top of that, that's really where the gold lies. It's also a risky strategy because if an individual leaves, then the kind of relationships that become, can become very intense. So it can mean that, that it can be very difficult to migrate them onto someone else. We try to mitigate that through sort of our, having our top sellers partner up with an assistant within the team so the so the client will get to know two people so therefore should your top seller move on to pastures new then the client wasn't left high and dry and having to start a game with someone else so that was one approach that we took as we started to aggressively grow personal shopping of course we were first in the space of digital personal shopping in the same way as growing customer care, like to hire from contact centers just didn't make sense. We weren't able to necessarily just hire from like for like. So you were there again. It was that process of identifying the right attitude and skill set and experience that you felt someone could come in and then we could translate it through to digital. And digital personal shopping is a lot harder than seeing someone in the flesh. It's very different. There are pluses and minuses to both approach. When it really comes together, when you have established that relationship with a client remotely and then you get to see them, that's like, that's that moment of um, joy that can really take the relationships to the next level. I mean, I remember when I was looking after clients where I would have, you know, just met a handful of them because they'd happened to be in London and it would be somebody that I'd spoken to for, I don't know, two and a half years or something. And then I'd meet them and then all of a sudden I'd be, it just sort of made everything click together, meeting that person in person, the person in person. So yes, yeah, so it was really important to allow an individual enough time to come in and understand and learn this way of working and almost like you know, the sales should grow sort of as they engage with more and more clients. It was We knew that it was the mm. way to um, to make new personal shoppers successful. 
Yeah. I remember you, me, Lupe, and I think it was Holly were chatting about this and we all were on the same page because I think we've seen tremendous success when people are allowed to spend time to build relationships rather than push sales. Mm -hmm. And obviously, very much to your earlier point, you sometimes lose a client and they only come to you once if for any reason they are pushed towards a sale of something that they might not actually want mm -hmm. if, if, if we're too hard. And it's, that word push is interesting because I never really used the word push until I got into PR and, and later on actually into PR, the world pushing press releases, pushing yeah. campaigns, yeah. pushing sales. And I really don't like it. And yeah, the, it the reason I wanted customers. to explore this with you is because I had this tactic, <laughs> tactic on social media and, and lots of fights about it of, of, of making sure that we never ever use Instagram to, to try and sell something. Mm. Tell a story, show the stuff you have. And then if people want to know more, they're going to say, Oh, I like that. Can I, can I find out more? I am obviously convinced about the people that you hired. Amazing personal shopper. Your protege, as we'd like to call her, Lupe Puerta. Mm. So th there's a long line of fantastic customer service people and personal shoppers walking around and claiming to be your mentees. How does that feel to have inspired so many people? It's lovely, actually. I think one of the most exciting things about the way I'm working at the moment has been reconnecting with so many people that I've worked with before and working with them in different ways. And actually, it gives me an immense sense of pride to see how people have, you know, grown and evolved and where their careers have taken them when you know where they started. And that you've taken a punt on them, I guess, effectively, um, by bringing them into business because you've seen something in them and how they've gone on to evolve and, and progress. And yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I love it. That's wonderful. I wanted to ask you now about a new program that you're working on with a, a relatively new retailer um, specializing in mm. fine jewelry called Your mm. Once. And mm. I understand a little bit about what they do because through the consulting side, I'm already in touch with the team at once and your name came up and I was like, huh, oh, well, there you go. It's a kind of pioneering new platform. Are you able to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. So once have been testing the water as a fine jewelry marketplace and as part of their journey, they've been exploring what the role of the personal sh shopper means in fine jewelry, I guess, really. And it's been part of their journey of understanding how key it is in making those high price point sales and understanding the lead time that can be involved in that. That has really evolved to you know, how can we connect with more personal shoppers that are working independently to connect them to the brands that they want to sell to their clients? So almost making that match. That was the very sort of start of the conversation. Essentially, what we've done is we've used a, taken a design thinking approach to exploring a hypothesis and started off by understanding through insight, through speaking getting some quant insight from independent personal shoppers. So we've talked to people in-house and working independently quite organically through extended networks, really, to understand what are the problems that could be solved through tech. 
And where we're at right now is the beginnings of establishing a professional community, a closed community for personal shoppers, whether they work for a business or independently. One of the key insights that came up was around sense of community, being able to share experiences, sort of the sense of camaraderie. We're looking at whether it would work to have as a membership model and what would be involved if you remember, because one of the other areas, you know, when you're in-house, you have the advantage of in-house logistics and services. When you're not, it makes life harder. And the reality is overarching all of this, personal shoppers are striving to meet customer expectations that are constantly rising. I was about to come to that point. Yeah. So, you know, that's what, so from access to product being hugely key right the way through to being able to deliver the product to them through that increasing demand that's been expedited through COVID essentially. So I guess that's, that, that's the overarching landscape of where we see this could be really interesting to explore. And it's interesting that it's a tech platform. Um, I don't remember the co. CEO of your ones, but I remember Vishal telling me that it was someone who came from a tech background and um, digital tech. Yes. So obviously I understand how yes. this becomes a possibility for them that would not necessarily be something that other businesses would consider so early on in, in their life. Now let's talk very quickly about the expectations nowadays of the consumer. You just said it. We want more, we want faster, we want it yesterday morning. What can brands do to help support the client's needs? Well, it's the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, yes, you know, we've got a speed expectation that has been set by that less known business (laughs) known as Amazon. I I think in many ways, brands need to own what they can do well, communicate it clearly and set the right expectation possible because there is a customer that's fueled by speed and access. But equally, most people are receptive for something that they really want that's where there's a much longer decision-making process, where it's not so instantaneous. There's an acceptance there for things to be delivered at a different pace. And it's really about how you manage the communication, which is not always as easy for everybody as it could be. If you can manage people's expectations about when they'll receive their drop and they can be confident that they are going to receive it as they expect, which I think is also the other thing that's really key. So I'm not going to receive my gown crumpled up in the bottom of a box. Or, you know, I can be confident that my beautiful piece um, that I'm investing in is going to arrive protected and secure and it's going to give me the unboxing wonder that I'm expecting. Those kinds of things are really key. What's really underestimated is the customer is really most engaged with your brand. It's not the point of payment. That's when the curve shoots up. It's that hockey stick effect, right? So you've gone through your decision-making process. So maybe you've had a peak because it's that. It's for something that's instantaneous. But where it's a slower burn, 
the tilt on the line, the gradient is, is, is much less severe. But then once you've made the decision and you've committed, that's when the anticipation curve kicks in. That's why there's such a communication opportunity to manage customers' expectations in that window. You are currently consulting for brands and businesses. You are working with other consultants, including me actually, but uh, Mm -hmm. with other people who are also taking oftentimes that long view in order to really better service customers. Is there any work in particular that you're eager to get your teeth into? Any kind of business or brand of different sizes that you think you could really make a, a really big difference to? I would say I'm in the privileged position at the moment to have have a lot of work and not have really been thinking about that. I'm working with so many different sectors at the moment. So the fine jewelry project you mentioned, I'm almost also been working with clients in luxury interiors, champagne. I'm also working with an amazing menopause brand, M Powder who are looking at, well, we are addressing women's nutritional needs as they change, as they go through the different stages of the menopause through supplements. I am a supplement skeptic, I have to be honest. When I met Rebecca, the founder, her story is really amazing and it's really, I guess, touching on a or relatable on such a personal level, the experience that she wants to create through her direct consumer experience is so much more than just buying the product. The brand is inspiring. The messaging is inspiring. It's empowering as well. It really appeals to my inner feminist, which... It's connecting to my inner feminist. Thank you. I can feel that thread (laughs) communicating via Zoom. Exactly. Actually, it's been, I think for me, it's, it's amazing working with them because I am constantly learning so much. And I think that's the most important thing for me now is, you know, you've got to constantly feel like you're learning. And I love the ability to adapt. You can get pigeonholed when you have a level of expertise in a certain area. Because people kind of want you to recreate what you've already done. And when you've done something that's been successful, that I guess intensifies that desire, but actually on a personal development level, that doesn't really do so much for you as an individual. So I guess working with Powder has been an extension of my interest in the beauty space that I cultivated during the, the time I was with Cult Beauty. I realized I'd been a uh, beauty person <laughs> Since I was in my early teens and I'd ne- because fashion had always been my dominant driver and it was a real awakening where I was like, actually, this has been really important to me my whole life. And actually, I feel like Empowder is the next, is the next extension of that. It's really important about how as women, we look after ourselves as we are moving into our later years and the education isn't there around how our bodies will start to change, but some of us are affected more than others. I really love working with empowered women and passionate female founders 
And it's a brand that comes from a place of purpose. It's about boosting women who are in it right now. But, you know, equally, it's about, it's about raising the conversation, the awareness earlier in our lives so that we know what we may be going into. So yeah, it's, it's been just, it's fascinating. Awesome. I'm so glad that, that you got to talk about it. I can feel your energy is so high about that project. It's amazing. Yes. They're also a great team, which also helps, doesn't oh, it? Well, I mean, <laughs> yes, yeah, really first. Been, it's lovely to be involved in something where you're really, you know, so we're a team of five and we are defining something from the ground up. So I have been shaping her whole our whole customer service proposition. Um, and we made our first hire at the beginning of the year and the role is customer hero. So that mm. really is about being very consciously intentional about the role that we want, who we were hiring. We were hiring the person into setting the expectation from the word go in shaping the job description so that they understood. And actually she's coming and she is the customer hero. And part of that is down to her and her experience. But I also know that part of it is down to the fact that we've been really clear on this is the role that we want you to play in the business. And then we've onboarded her in a way that has empowered her to be able to deliver that role. Mm. Interesting, because last week, you may or may not have seen that I did a blog post on the power of words. And it looks like the words that you're using to build that team, to build the job description, to convey the concepts of that customer journey also have, you know, a superpower. Absolutely. Words are really important, really important because if you use them intentionally, they set an expectation, they create a goal, they can create unity. It's um, beautiful. It's, got to find, it's not always that easy to find the right ones, as we know. It's uh, having a consciousness about it is incredibly valuable. Last question before I hit you with my super hard <laughs> end questions. Why should anybody listening right now care about their customers if they don't already? Well, I see it as pretty simple black and white. If your customers deliver your revenue, what's not to care about? There are so many stats out there about it being more expensive to acquire than to retain and all the rest of it, which is true. If, if you have a long-term ambition for your business, take your customers on the journey with you and keep them close. Listen to what they want. It may not always be what you can give them, but it may inspire something that they didn't even know that they wanted. That's the power of listening. I struggle to understand people that don't put the customer on the top of the pedestal. You just mic dropped again. <laughs> I think twice. I'm going to have very high expectations for any conversation I ever, I ever have with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. That was, that was really wonderful. And I think that sometimes it's in simple words and asking that simple question that we also sort of raise the bar of, of understanding that looking after each other actually is also really good for business. Simply. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. On every level. Now, let's migrate a little bit. As you are familiar with the podcast, I like to tie in mindfulness and wellness into business and, and branding conversations. I'd love to find out from you, 
what has worked for you? Did you have a practice of any kind and rituals that you followed before we got into this beautiful pandemic times? And what has kept you grounded and sane at home with your lovely husband and two kids over the past year? Well, I think you've always got to look for the silver linings, haven't you? Really, in every situation, I think that's what can carry you through. It's really easy to get bogged down in what you can't do, what's not worked. And I think for me personally, having commuted to London for so many years, the family time gained back from not commuting has been really uh, life-changing. I commuted since 2010 and I was just so used to doing it. Things in family routine in terms of having dinner together at six o'clock. So more family meals, more quality time together as a family. That's been really a massive bonus from this time. I know actually that for me, commuting also had many positives. So I used to use my time on the train really constructively as part of my day. It also, I wasn't necessarily renowned for being very good at leaving the office early. It was a, a bit of a diehard habit from many years of working in a startup where we all worked long and hard. Actually, when we moved to Brighton, I soon realized if I left the office later than a certain time, which would make I would get home later than a certain point, then actually my capacity the following day was, re- was, was really impacted because I was really tired from not having enough downtime at home. I've also been quite aware that that was a positive routine that I had to adjust to, but being able to work remotely without a problem at all on all of the projects that I've worked on and also whilst I was still working for Cult Beauty... I think that's been really life-changing and actually the sort of the time gained from not being on the train, I actually really embraced the half an hour's exercise allowance that, you know, was what we were allowed at the beginning of lockdown really positively and made sure that I just got outside and reaped the benefits of living by the beach, which... I wasn't able to do before. That was a real positive. And I think the other thing, the other positive habit that I've managed to sustain is I've enjoyed yoga for a while. I have a really dear friend locally who teaches a great class and I was able to do her yoga classes more regularly. and I was able to support her by doing them on Zoom and I started practicing on my own as well. And I have to say that's maybe ebbed and flowed a bit with the chopping and changing between different lockdowns and homeschooling and all of that. But actually, I mean, as I mentioned to you earlier, my day I had a great start to the day, Monday morning yoga on the beach at half past eight. It's, you know, since she's been able to start teaching again and I actually bookend my week with yoga on Monday morning and Friday morning. So it's been a real, really positive habit to be able to make. So yes, that's how, that's how I've managed to transition into this different way of living. Yeah. <laughs> that's beautiful. And I'm so glad that you were able to support your friend as well and, and join the classes on Zoom. I find that there's so many, yeah, there's, there's amazing teachers of lots of different mm. kinds of whether it's personal training or, you know, all of these things that have really made everybody else feel more grounded and more connected to themselves. So a few quick fire round 
questions. Mm. What's your favorite word? So when I was a student in Leeds in the early 90s and we would go out because the club scene in Leeds was amazing. So there was this incredible night on a Saturday night called Speed Queen, except that I think originally when I started there, it was called Vague. And it was this amazing night that was had a lot of cross-dressers attending. It was really incredibly flamboyant. And you had to line up to get into the club and get past, I think, the door lady's name was Madame Jojo and you'd have to queue for hours so it was that whole like picking from the queue thing and I remember being really nervous about going and planning the outfit for ages and just thinking that we were the first time this would have been the first time we went and just just being like oh my goodness she's gonna ask me she had a reputation for pulling people out of the queue and making them perform and all the rest of it and that to me is just my my first nightmare. Anyway, we got to the front of the queue and I can't remember exactly how she phrased it, but she ba- she asked us for a word. <laughs> it was me that answered with the word, which I'm pretty sure was unequivocal, which is... I mean, quite, amazing. Quite true to me, really. And I think, you know, I was doing my history of art degree, which frankly was like learning a new language because of all the postmodernist phraseology that I'd had to decipher. I'm pretty sure that it was, that that was the root of the word. It is a word that is quite true to me. Fantastic story. I mean, you've just like <laughs> bulldozed everybody else I've asked that. <laughs> Tell me what song best represents you. Okay, so I have to confess, I'm shocking at remembering names of songs Mm or people that have sung them. So I grew up on Madonna. I grew up loving Madonna, wanting to be Madonna, wanting to dress like Madonna, knowing all the words to every song from my teens, which I still know. I don't know if I there's a song that necessarily best describes me. I've never actually managed to see her live in concert either, shamefully. I so want to. Mm, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm there. If you get tickets, I'm okay, there. I'll go anywhere it. in the world. <laughs> so, you know, I think there is, so, it just brings back so many memories from teenage years. So I don't know that I could particularly pick one out that describes me. She's just, she's a really evocative to me mm. and inspiring. Mm. Yeah, I have to tell you, I was thinking about her today because last week I wrote about the US cover of Vogue and the British Vogue cover. So we have Amanda Gorman on the US Vogue and Billie Eilish in latex corset in the UK. And I thought it was very interesting to look at two young artists, you know, self-representation. Yeah, But that obviously brought Lady Gaga in my mind and Madonna. Yes, I was reading the Billie Eilish piece and maybe it was Edward's introductory letter. Maybe I haven't got through to actually reading the piece Mm. yet and why it was important to her. And I know my initial thought when I saw her on the cover was it just reminded me of Madonna's corsets. Yeah. Well, they were great corsets. So, (laughs) you know what? The reason she was on my mind is I remember I was washing the dishes lunchtime 
And I remember being 12 or 13 years old and I had bought Papa Don't Preach. <laughs> yes. And I couldn't speak. Okay. I didn't speak a word of English. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was singing along that throughout the entire house. My parents could speak English. So how they let me get on with that, I don't understand. It's like, Papa, don't preach. I'm keeping yes. my baby. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? My dad is a gynecologist. Can you imagine? <laughs> Your 12-year-old is running around going, I'm keeping my baby. It's so funny. But I can remember Like a Virgin being on top of the pops. And I can remember, I would have been about eight because I remember <laughs> it was in our old house or nine and I can remember asking my mother what the virgin was I don't remember her answer I always I remember that conversation that's so much fun so anyway she's been on my mind for a while but I'll just read you that one extra little story so as I started loving Madonna and George Michael and Michael Jackson this was my triptych yes I in in teen magazines of the time the the lyrics were printed in English and I was learning live to tell. Yes. And I could figure out some form of the sentence structure, <laughs> but not all yeah. of it. And I did not understand. I will live to tell. I was like, what is the will thing? Like I did. And I remember being in my bedroom and just reading those lyrics going, but what is, is that a verb? Is that something else? <laughs> Anyways, funny, funny story. Amazing. Ah, uh, Madonna. So let's move on. Who or what did you want to be when you were a little girl? Well, if we're talking about a little, little girl, I fell in love with ballet, the romance of ballet, probably the costumes and the shoes, I would imagine, the ballet shoes. And the tutus. Uh, yes, from a very young age. So I think that was my first aspiration. But as I mentioned, by the age of 10, I knew that I wanted to. I wanted to be a fashion designer. That was my aspiration from the age of 10. And that sort of evolved over the, over the years. Amazing. When I decided not to go to art college. What would you say to your younger self if you could send yourself a message? Oh, be kinder to yourself when you're young. Be less self-critical. I think it's really hard and it all comes from a place of sort of insecurity and figuring out who you are. When I look back and I think, why did I used to worry about wearing this or that? You know, when I was in my late teens or early twenties, I think be kinder to your self-perception of body image would be what I would tell myself 20 years ago. Thank you. What is the best advice you've ever been given? Um... Well, I guess there are two things that spring to mind. One was before I got married and I remember Natalie Massonet saying to me about making sure you take a moment during your wedding day to just mentally step back and consciously observe everything that's going on around you, which I did and have passed on to many other girls I've known who are getting married. The second one that stands out to me was a conversation that I had in Florence many years ago when I'd gone for the weekend with, I say my aunt, she's actually my mum's cousin who I'm really close to. We have a kind of mother-daughter relationship, but it's more verging on a friendship and it comes from a place where she has boys and crave the, the female camaraderie to a certain extent. 
Anyway, we're in Florence and we're having dinner and there was a guy, a guy sitting on the, on the table adjacent to us. And I don't really remember how the conversation started, but he was evidently in Florence on business and he worked for a brand. I'm pretty sure it's an American brand called Adrian Vitadini. I think it was a shoe brand, as I recall. And I remember we ended up talking to him. And at the time I was working at Harrods. And I remember him saying about the experience of working, you know, for a big store like that, how in that environment you can be the small fish in the big pond. And then as you learn from your experience there, how you could, you know, you can take that forward to go on to be the bigger fish in the smaller pond. And that's something that's just always stayed with me. That's fantastic. Thanks for reminding me. That's a, a powerful analogy. Mm. What book is next to your bed or on your desk? Mm, what I don't have, actually, unusually, I don't have any books on my desk at the moment. I normally have a stack of customer experience books that I've dipped in and out of. And equally by my bed, I have a stack of books that I've started reading and not finished. I tend to read nonfiction mm -hmm. these days. Some of it can be in the customer experience space. And now I'm going to have to remember one of the titles. That's okay. You can also just give me your favorite book of all times, if that's easier. I don't know that I have a favorite book of all time, actually. I've always been a reader. Mm -hmm. I don't read as much as I would like to these days. And I think that's something that's decreased since having family, really. And I try and read it at bedtime. My mother and my grandmother are incredible readers. I mean, some of my favorite books actually are Anne Seber's biographies. I haven't read any. They are wonderful. So, and funnily enough, so when I first met Anne Seber and Mark had brought her into the office and she needed an outfit for, it was for a book launch, I think. And so just in talking to her and she sort of said to me, Oh, I don't expect you've read any of my books because I write these historical biographies and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking, and Seba. And in my, my mind, I can visualize this book on my shelf at home in my parents, my bedroom, my parents' house, Laura Ashley by Anne Seba. And I had read her biography of Laura Ashley for my A-level textiles project. And I had done work experience at the Laura Ashley Textile Design Studios. And I'd written my whole A-level sort of dissertation study project. I don't really remember what it was called then. That was sort of combination of the work experience and reading her book and understanding the history behind the founder. That's really fantastic. Just to explain for our listeners, Anne it was the wife of Mark Sabah who was for a long time the CEO of, of Netaporte and who sadly passed away uh, a few years ago. Yeah, that's right. How wonderful to meet someone whose book you've read and that was so meaningful for you. Yes. I mean, it was, it was incredible when I've gone on to read, I think, every book that she's published since. And I normally get it and read it and then I hand it around the family. So my mum and my grandmother both love them as well. Oh, that's awesome. You're right. I should rephrase this question sometimes as who's your favorite writer? Because I, I'm not sure I can name a favorite book, but I have a couple of favorite writers. So mm. Mm. 
Good point. And who's the one person that you think we should all know about? Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a good one. I might have to give that a bit of thought. Well, actually, no. So somebody who was really formative in my time at Leeds was a professor called Griselda Pollock. And she was, is phenomenal. She founded the feminist canon of art history. And this was all very new to me. And I guess this is where, when I talk about my inner feminist, it came from her teachings and her lectures. But essentially, when she was a student at the Courthold Institute of Art in the 70s, she sat there and said, well, she's like, the traditional canon of art, which goes from the beginning until today, talks about white men. Where are all the women and the non-white people? Essentially, she wrote the history of women's artists, of female artists. She's very well known and renowned within her field. She's an incredible, incredible force, really incredible woman. And yes, I went on to, to do her feminist art history courses in my final year. And she informed my take on fashion and... My dissertation was inspired by what I had learned through studying under her. I am super fascinated. I just looked her up. That sounds amazing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Thanks. See, I knew that was a good question. (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) And now for our last one. And of course, my favorite. What brings you happiness? Oh, many things, but probably... Happy family, really happy children means a happy, it means happy parents these days. That's what brings me happiness. I guess it's, it's changed over time according to phases of life. Holidays in Ibiza bring me a lot of happiness. So yes, a bit of hedonism can bring a bit of happiness. Family time can bring happiness to complete extremes. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, Helen, thank you so much for the time you've given me today. It was such a pleasure, such a joy to talk to you. Where can people find you if they would like to talk about customer design experience and customer care? I would say look me up on LinkedIn and connect and drop me a message. That's probably the best place to find me. Awesome. I will put the link in the show notes and I'm going to thank you and wish you a wonderful rest of your evening. Thanks so much for everything, Helen. That's a pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you as always. Hey, friends and listeners. Thanks again for joining me today. And thanks to Helen for her time and the wonderful conversation we just had. So This is just a reminder that selected links from the topics in this episode are included in the show notes. If you'd like to hear more, go to your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. You can leave a review, a comment, anything that you fancy. We just really love to hear from you. And, you know, feel free to share and send this podcast to a friend. It is by far the best way for this show to reach new people. And I really, really appreciate that. So if you want to connect, get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter or LinkedIn. 
at underscore out of the clouds on Instagram, where you can also find some guided meditations and other daily musings about mindfulness. You can very soon find all about my new project and all new episodes at anvmulatada.com. If you don't know how to spell it, that's fine. It's also in the show notes. Sign up to receive email updates on all the cool things that I'm doing. The site is almost live. So that's it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope you'll join us again next time. Be well, be safe, 